I have to open a beer here. It's a high <laughs> alcohol beer and it comes in a 19.2 ounce can. So I figure <laughs> this is the time to crack this open. You can't escape it. Maggie, look. Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of the creeping unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a question I know the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close. Brian Donlevy. He dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the creeping unknown. I want to call around the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric, and with me today is... John Zanardelli. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Last time we watched The Black Sleep, which was a movie that was on a double bill in the U.S. with The Creeping Unknown. <laughs> the Creeping Unknown was actually a 1955 film in the U.K. known as The Quatermass Experiment. We'll talk about that in a minute, but what have you been up to since last we talked? Um, I just got all caught up on Succession today, and uh, I also watched the first season of Sandman, too. Ah, yes. The first season of Sandman, which uh, apparently we've heard has been renewed, so there will be another Great. Sandman Great. season, which is yeah. good to know. Yeah, because I... Um, I I was interested enough, and one of the, one of the guys that I watched that does uh, comic reviews literally did an entire retrospective on like all 75 issues. And I realized, oh, wait, so season one was basically issues one through 20 or something. Have you not read the comic? I have not. No. <laughs> so. The best comic ever <laughs> written, ever written. It's better than Watchmen even. Oh, good. If you have not read it, you need to read it. It looked really interesting. Yeah. And I'm definitely down. 
I would absolutely want to watch or, or like read the comics before the new season starts. So, I mean, it is my all time favorite comic series. And if you're a fan of old school DC stuff, there is a lot of minor characters from mm-hmm. the DC universe that make appearances throughout the Sandman. Oh, yeah, I heard. But um, they're not going to be, of course, in the Netflix series because DC sucks that way and won't let them use them. <laughs> yeah. But you can kind of tell, like, when you got, like, names like Joanna Constantine in there. Yeah. This is actually my first foray into Hammer Films. Like, I've been meaning to watch, like, all the Christopher Lee Dracula vampire films, all the Hammer Horror. I've heard so much about them, and I've been excited to watch them. So, like, when you asked me to do this, it's like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to watch some Hammer films. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> it is the greatest series of horror films that have been made. The Universal Monster films are also in that, like, they might come close, you know, but that's about it. I said last time they're kind of the Blumhouse of their time. Yeah. That's the nearest mm-hmm. modern equivalent we have to it. Like, one studio that's putting out a kind of film that has a sort of similar style to all of the the movies yeah but um before we get into that let's talk about the year this came out 1955 january 17th the uss nautilus is the first nuclear powered submarine it's launched from groton connecticut is that how you say that groton or groton Groton? Uh, i think i think groton sounds about right groton sounds like groton (laughs) i'm sorry connecticut (laughs) <laughs> we have a long-standing thing on this podcast. Do not write us in about our pronunciation of names <laughs> because it doesn't matter if we're doing American films. With this one, we're doing British films. I guarantee there'll be some mispronunciations. Anyway, March 5th, 1955, Elvis Presley makes his debut on Louisiana Hayride on KSLA TV, Shreveport, Louisiana. April 12th, the polio vaccine was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Hmm. May 14th, eight communist bloc countries signed the Warsaw Pact Mutual Defense Treaty. So we're talking the start of the Cold War here. Yep. (laughs) And uh, June 16th, Disney's 15th animated film, Lady and the Tramp, premieres in Chicago. July 11th, future astronaut Neil Armstrong becomes a test pilot at the high-speed flight station of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. NACA, which is the predecessor to NASA, hmm. uh, at Edwards Air Force Base, California, after transferring from NACA's Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio. And then August 26th, 1955, the Quatermass Experiment premieres at the London Pavilion in Piccadilly Circus. Can I get a little nerdy with the release dates? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So um, in addition to Lady and the Tramp, um, I think the big award bait movies in, in 55, if I could say it off my head, that was the year that Marty won. Uh, that was also the year of Love is a Many Splendored Thing, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that's about all I can remember off the top of my head right now, because I also remember 1955 being, it was a landmark year for when Marty McFly went back, but was not the most memorable for movies. Let's talk a little bit about Hammer Studios. Oh, yeah. So where did Hammer Studios come from? 
in the 1930s, there was a comedian named William Hines, and he took the stage name Will Hammer because he lived in the neighborhood of London called Hammersmith. In 1934, he registered a film company under the name Hammer Productions Limited, and the first film he produced, which is now a lost film, was a comedy called The Public Life of Henry IX. Soon after that, Heinz met a theater owner named Enrique Carreras, and together they formed a film distribution company called Exclusive Films to distribute Hammer's films. They distributed a few films in 1935-1936, including one called The Mystery of the Mary Celeste in 1935, which featured Bela Lugosi. A mystery, not a horror yet. They haven't reached the horror stage yet. Mm -hmm. Hammer Productions went into bankruptcy in 1937, but exclusive films survived by distributing other production companies' films. Then in 1938, William and Enrique's sons, James Carreras and Anthony Hines, took over exclusive, but were drafted into World War II. Okay. So after the war, they revived Hammer Film Productions to make low-budget films, and most were based on radio serials, and they were basically taking advantage of a British law that required theaters exhibit a minimum number of domestically produced films to counteract Hollywood's dominance in the marketplace. (laughs) The main lesson they learned, since they were making these fast and cheap, that studios were expensive. And they could just rent a house much cheaper. (laughs) We're both laughing because we have done this or we have been there. Yeah, (laughs) we have been there in many a production. In fact, that was one of the first productions we have. I think that might have been the production we met on. I'm not sure. Uh, If it's the Mark Burchett one we're talking about, then yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay. So um, I was the line producer, so I hired you. (laughs) So they would rent a mansion. And then they'd shoot a few movies there. And then by the time the neighbors' complaints became too great, they would like move on and rent a different mansion. Brilliant. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. A practice still done to this day. So in 1951, they actually bought a mansion called Down Place Mm -hmm. and remodeled it into a studio called Bray Studios. The mansion and its grounds became the distinctive look of Hammer Films. That same year, Hammer and Exclusive signed a four-year production and distribution contract with U.S. film producer Robert Lippert. Mm -hmm. Exclusive would distribute Lippert's pictures in the U.K., and Lippert would distribute Hammer Films in the U.S. But there was a catch. (laughs) Lippert insisted that in order to do this deal, there had to be an American star in the Hammer films because he didn't think a British star uh, would sell in the U.S. Okay. Which is why there are so many American leads in Hammer productions of the 50s. In 1952, they produced a film noir called The Last Page, and the director, Terrence Fisher, he went on to become their star horror director. Mm-hmm. In 1953 the first Hammer science fiction films came out, Four-Sided Triangle and Spaceways. And then the Quatermass Experiment, that was originally a six-part TV serial on BBC TV in 1953. 
It was written by Nigel Neal and was a big hit. Anthony Hines contacted the BBC two days after the final episode to inquire about the film rights. Hmm. The BBC was already shopping it around to film producers and had met with Sidney Gilliatt, but Gilliatt passed on it because he was afraid it would get an X rating from the British <laughs> Board of Film Classification, the BBFC. If it got an X rating, no one under 16 would be able to see it, and Hammer didn't care. <laughs> they paid 500 pounds for the rights. Richard Landau, who worked on six previous Hammer productions, including Spaceways, was given the job of drafting the script. He made major changes. He condensed all the action to less than half the length of the original teleplay. He eliminated some characters altogether. The opening 30 minutes of the TV version is covered in just two minutes in the Hammer film. <laughs> Landau also emphasized the horror elements of the original teleplay. And since it was a joint U.S.-U.K. production, Lando changed the British rocket group to be the British-American rocket group <laughs> and changed Quartermass from a professor to a doctor, and Quartermass's assistant, Briscoe, became a U.S. Air Force flight surgeon. <laughs> In his script, Quartermass became more of a, an action hero than a scientist. Yeah. Cue spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The change that annoyed Neil the most was that originally Karun, the bad guy, absorbed not only the bodies, but also the memories and personalities of his fellow astronauts. Hmm. So it's kind of like Rogue. Yeah. At the end, Quatermass makes an appeal to the last vestiges that remain of the three astronauts that are part of this creature to force the creature to commit suicide before it can spore. Hmm. However, in this film version, as we'll talk later, Quatermass kills the monster by electrocution. Director Val Guest defended that change, saying it was filmically a better end to the story. Oh, I have some thoughts about that, but go on. <laughs> he also thought Brian Dunleavy's gruff interpretation of Quartermass mm -hmm. wouldn't lend itself to talking the creature into submission. <laughs> yeah, no, that 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 personality, like that that that. Uh... Right now, I'm just giving some background to Hammer in general in this film in particular. Yeah. Which, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense from after watching this, which I just watched it today. So it, it's still fresh in me. And I'm like, okay, this explains a lot of uh, what I just saw and had feelings about. Val Guest, the director, he made even deeper cuts to Landau's script, cutting 30 more pages from it. Hmm. Guest also rewrote the dialogue to fit the brusque style of Dunleavy, and he also changed Quartermass's title from Doctor back to Professor and changed Briscoe back to a British character. Huh. He also adapted some sections of the script in response to concerns of the BBFC, who gave them some early feedback, that it might be too extreme <laughs> for even an X rating. <laughs> 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 also, the BBC now had final script approval after the sale, and they asked Nigel Neal to work on some suggested changes 
which he wasn't happy about because he didn't get any money from the sale of the film rights because he was just an employee of the BBC. Hmm. So this will come into play later on. <laughs> so Neil was primarily tasked with rewriting any of the scenes featuring BBC announcers so that it matched the BBC house news style huh. of reporting. Okay. As we said, Lippert wanted American actors, so he brought in Brian Dunleavy to play Quartermass. Dunleavy claimed, quote, that he specialized in He-Man roles, rough, tough, and realistic, unquote. Okay. <laughs> His portrayal of Quartermass, which was markedly different from Reginald Tate's in the TV version, wasn't to Neil's liking. Nigel Neal didn't care for it. He called him, quote, a former Hollywood heavy gone to seed, unquote. <laughs> and he said, quote, and he said, quote, I may have picked Quartermass's surname out of a phone book, but his first name was carefully chosen, Bernard, after Bernard Lavelle, the creator of Jodrell Bank, which is a space observatory. Mm -hmm. Pioneer, ultimate questing man. Dunleavy played him as a mechanic, a creature with a completely closed mind, unquote. Yeah. So Val Guest responded to this, the director. He said, quote, Nigel Neal was expecting to find Quartermass like he was on television, a sensitive British scientist, not some American stomping around. But to me, <clears throat> Don Levy gave it absolute reality, unquote. So this is my translation <laughs> of that. In okay. other words, basically... Nigel Neal wanted a William Hartnell and he got a William Shatner. That is basically my take on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> by this stage of his career, Dunleavy was suffering from alcoholism and several weeks into the shoot, guests discovered that the flask of coffee he brought to the set was always spiked with brandy. Sounds about right. <laughs> he did say... Quote, Brian was all right. No problem at all once you kept him sober. Unquote. <laughs> now the question is, is how easy was it to keep him sober? Apparently they, they were able to do it. Okay. So Guest has said he wanted to make a, quote, slightly wild story more believable, unquote, by creating a science fact film shot as though shooting a special program for the BBC or something. Inspired by Ilya Kazan's neorealist film noir, Panic in the Streets, okay. Guest employed a cinema verite style with extensive use of handheld cameras, even when shooting interiors, which was basically horrified the technicians that were employed on the film. Like, that is not how we do film here in Britain. No, you know? yeah, like they would be like, I mean, if you, if you change the things, if you change the way you're shooting something on a crew they're going to light something a certain way. It's like, oh shit, are they going to be able to see all of our lights now? Or are they going to see, you know? So to further heighten the pace and the realism, he had the actors deliver their lines rapid fire and overlap each other's dialogue. I want to make a note about James Bernard's music score here. Yes. He used a rising, falling, three-note, atonal string sound to heighten the sense of menace. This technique is most well known as being employed in Psycho mm. in 1960 and is often incorrectly attributed to Psycho 
as the first film to employ the technique, but in fact, it was this film. Hmm. All right. As expected, Quartermass Experiment got an X rating uh, from the BBFC. Most studios did everything they could to avoid getting an X, but Hammer, they didn't care. They saw the success <laughs> of other films that had gotten the X rated rating certificate, like Le Diabolique. Mm. And so they chose to call attention to it. This is what I wanted to know when we were doing this and didn't know for sure. Why is it called the Quartermass Experiment without an E? It's Quartermass Experiment. Yeah. And the reason is exclusive films wanted to call attention to the fact that it had an X rating. And so they pitched it to <laughs> cinema managers with the tagline X is not an unknown quantity and urged them to exploit the excitement. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, you, should, you should be used to that, given all the X titles that Marvel would put out if, if they could come up i was with gonna a, i was about to make that parallel <laughs> if they could if they could find uh, a word that had the word x in it they would put out a comic by that name so later releases they put the e back in the title the quartermass experiment premiered august 26 1955 at london pavilion in piccadilly circus the eric winstone band show which was a big band filmed live i guess was the supporting feature <laughs> and it performed pretty phenomenally well it got a wide UK release on November 20th as a double bill with the French film Rafifi, which is a crime drama. Hmm. This release was timed to coincide with the BBC's broadcast of the TV sequel, Quartermass 2. Hmm. And it became the most successful double bill release of 1955 in the UK. In the US, Robert Lippert tried to get Columbia Pictures to distribute the film, but they didn't want it to compete with their own film it came from beneath the sea, which was out at the time. Ah. So because Quartermass was unknown in the U.S., Lippert retitled the film Shock! With an exclamation point. <laughs> but he couldn't sell it to anyone. Yeah, with a title like that. Yeah, that sounds like a William Castle film. <laughs> so he retitled it again to The Creeping Unknown. And then finally, United Artists bought the distribution rights in March of 1956 for $125,000. The Creeping Unknown was packaged in a double bill with The Black Sleep, and it opened in U.S. theaters in June and was so successful that United Artists offered to co-fund the sequel. Hmm. I meant to mention this when we're talking about The Black Sleep, but according to a report in Variety, a nine-year-old boy died of a ruptured artery at a cinema in Oak Park, Illinois, during the showing of this double bill. And the Guinness Book of World Records records it as the only known case of an audience member dying of fright from a horror film. Okay. Okay. That, uh, my, my Mystery Science Theater 3000 sense is tingling all over the place right now. <laughs> there was a movie in season nine called The Screaming Skull. Yep. And I don't know if they like put the trailer in front of the movie before they put the credits. There's a lot of different like weird ways that this the Screaming Skull was released, but they literally had a casket. Like it's just a, a dolly in on a casket that says the, the Screaming Skull ends is such shocking terror that you may die of fright. So the studio has to like say we will provide coffins if you die of fright. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> That, that became a gigantic punchline in the show, that they would die from boredom first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John Carpenter, who later 
collaborated with Nigel Neal on Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, hmm. claimed that Quartermass Experiment had an enormous impact on him, and it continues to be one of his all-time favorite science fiction movies. You can definitely tell. <laughs> By 1955, the independent theater market that was basically the bread and butter for Hammer Films was drying up due to television. So the Quartermass Experiment was a welcome success. It came just at the right time and gave them a hit. But more importantly, it brought them to the attention of major film distributors. Hmm. So when the Lippert deal expired in 1955, Hammer was able to deal directly with the major distributors in the U.S. Wow. and no longer needed an intermediary. This made exclusive films, Hammer's own distribution company, unnecessary, and it basically wound down in the late 50s. Hmm. The following year, in 1956, a bunch of rival British film companies tried to cash in with other sci-fi films, but Hammer's market research determined that it was not the science fiction aspects, but the horror aspects of the Quartermass Experiment that accounted for its success. So three of the four films that they released the next year in 1956, X the Unknown, Quartermass 2, and The Curse of Frankenstein were all horror films. Yeah. Curse of Frankenstein is what everybody thinks of as the first Hammer horror film, but Michael Carreras later said, quote, the film that must take all the credit for the whole Hammer series of horror films was really the Quartermass Experiment, unquote. I can see that. There we go. We open up with a just, uh, I don't know if this couple has a name or whatever. It's just young man, young woman. They start frolicking together. They literally end up in the hay. <laughs> And then they're suddenly interrupted by like this strange noise in the, the sky. They're like, oh, is that a jet? And it's like, no, that doesn't sound like any jet I've heard. They run to the nearby house. The roof falls in on the house. And this rocket, like apparently this rocket is just like embedded into the ground. And it's, it's a pretty impressive effect for 1955. Like there's some nice compositing there. The local fire brigade and everyone comes in. And apparently they're told not to spray it with water because apparently it's so hot. But if they were to cool it down, like something would get released or something. But then, of course, Quartermass shows up and <laughs> takes all the charge in the world in this. And I, we'll get it. We'll get into that later. <laughs> no, we can get into it now. We can get into okay. it as we go through it. Let, let's go ahead and like break it down as we go. <laughs> OK, so, yeah, like as he's as he's doling out all these orders about no we can't open this hey i hear someone inside oh we got to get him out you said not to open this and it's just every move every order he has contradicts his previous order which he just delivers with like the the gruffest sincerity and then right as they're about to open the door to let this like this person that's knocking at the door out <laughs> And I, I wrote this down because it, it actually cracked me up. Is He says, don't argue with me. I know what I'm doing. And like every bit of me went, are you sure? Because I can't help but feel you don't. <laughs> See, this is, this is what I like about it, right? Quartermass, this, this Quartermass, to me, yeah. like I compared him to William Shatner earlier. Yes. Like I know a... I like really liked Star Trek as a kid and I wanted it mm -hmm. to come back. And I signed a petition with so many other people to bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. 
we finally got them to bring it back in like 1987 or something like that. I was almost graduated from high school by the time we got them to bring it back. They brought it back on Fox and it was the most PC show ever. There was like two captains almost and they would argue about how things should be done. And like, you know, um, you know, I guess Picard was in charge, but he had a sense of like his own fallibility and he would listen to his advisors and stuff like that, you know, like a real person. Yeah. Shatner. Screw that. It's like, we're doing, we're doing this. All right. Right. We're doing this. And that's what I love. Like that, like, you know, it's been parodied to Helen back by Zap Brannigan, whatever, but that's, (laughs) that is what I want. That is what Star Trek should be. And Bernard Quartermass, that's what I liked about him. Like, this is not what I was expecting from a scientist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, it, I, I think it's just what, what got me more than, more so than like the Kirk Picard debate, which that's a whole other podcast. But this guy, I don't know. I think it's just like the line delivery and just like how he went about it. It reminded me of the father from Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> and of course, and again, the mystery science theater fan. Don't go down to the base. I'm going to the basement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make all the wrong decisions. It's like, or I'm but, just gonna but it's decision. not just that he makes the wrong decisions. He's convinced that that is the only way to do it. You know, that's what I'd like about this. <laughs> well, I'd say we have some modern examples where that's not a good thing, you know, but okay. But anyway, moving on. So the door opens. This astronaut comes out. He only gets one word out. He's able to whisper it to quarter mass and it's just help me. So they go into the ship and there's no other survivors. The bodies look kind of like limp. The suits are empty. Yeah. The suits are empty. Yeah. Like, I mean, I thought I saw a hand in one of them. It might have just been a glove, but. They send the footage of the ship off to get pieced together to see if they could figure out what happened. Back then, there was no such thing as like, let's look at the video. Like <laughs> They had to take the rolls of film and send them off to be developed and then see what happened. So they do that. Not only that, but pray that like any fire wouldn't damage the film as well. Right. Save a side story for later, but I actually had that happen on a set recently. And the biggest concern was, oh, God, did the film melt? <laughs> Actually, a lot of early um, film was shot on a very volatile film, a nitrogen film, and it yeah. would uh, it, it would catch fire or explode. A lot of the early Doctor Who episodes, which we'll talk about Doctor Who later today, <laughs> a lot of the early Doctor Who episodes are lost for that very reason. There was a fire at the BBC yeah. and gone, gone. Yeah. Modern film nerds will know that little plot point from Inglorious Bastards. The film stock in the 40s was more flammable than anything else. And that became what they lined the theater with. Okay. Back to the film. The surviving astronaut is taken to be, you know, to be observed. There's a debate as to whether or not they want to put him in a, a lab or a hospital. They end up actually putting him in a hospital, but there's like a, I, I think one of the scientists goes to, you know, to monitor as well. Uh, the wife of the astronaut is trying to get him out. So she hires like a private detective to basically spring him out. So he comes in, finds out when the shift change happens, sneaks in during that shift change, gets him dressed. 
Um, we see him stare at a cactus inside his room yep. before he leaves. And then they both get onto an elevator and this is when hell begins to break loose. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, the footage has been pieced together. They're watching everything that was going on on the ship. Yeah. So in that footage, there's a scene where they're in zero G and they do this thing where one of the astronauts is walking yes. up the wall. And I yes. swear to God, Stanley Kubrick stole that for 2001. I wrote that note down myself. I was like, oh, my God, that's that's the 2001 effect. Yeah, because <laughs> like it, it, it's like it, it's interacting with the same set that we've seen before. Like we've seen this established already. But like he goes to like this one spot and just starts like walking up the wall and then comes back down and there's and there's like no cut like this like in the other actors that are there are still interacting on like perfectly normal gravity and yeah you're right that's that's the 2001 shot yeah it was very impressive while we're calling out other like interesting connections i want to point out that the guy who plays the sole surviving astronaut mm -hmm. who is now somehow affected by something that's afflicted with something. The actor is Richard Wordsworth. Mm -hmm. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he is the grandson, a great grandson, something like that of William Wordsworth, the poet. Oh, my, f I love William Wordsworth. <laughs> I had a romantic literature class and I just, I fell in love with, you know, the romantic poets, the father, he's the father of romanticism. I fell in love with William Wordsworth. So that's, that's really awesome to know. Oh, well, I hate to burst your bubble because later on, if, if you're still around when we're doing um, the curse of Frankenstein, it, it's not Shelley-esque at all. But anyway, um, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want that great, uh, Byron Shelley type stuff, you got to watch the universal um, yeah, no, like I, I know when it comes to Hammer, like it's it's its own interpretation and what it does, it does well, like because it's even though I haven't seen it, like I know that it's it's cemented its place in history for the adaptation it takes. And I'm fine with adaptations. So the wife hires a P.I. or something to help break her husband out of this solitary confinement in a hospital. Mm -hmm. <sighs> OK, how does that go? <laughs> Well, um, I'll just say I was not expecting that that body reveal for 1955. <laughs> the PI is attacked by the astronaut in the, the elevator. He leaves, gets to the wife down by the car. She drives him away. Uh, the nurse says she's changing her shift, finds the PI there. And like half of his face is like ripped apart like down to the bone. And I, like I said, I was not prepared for that at all. So then they're in the car. She's doing all the talking. She tries to light a cigarette. He's not very responsive, but he has like a reaction to her. And, and this is something I, I even had to go back and rewind. It. I was like, did I miss something in her reaction? Cause she just like, he turns around and like, she flips out and he's all, he's just tearing out of the car there. And I'm like, I swear I missed a reveal of something there. So I went back and I was watching it again. I was like, yeah, no, I didn't miss anything. Um, it just, I, I did not, it was just wasn't lit very well, but we see something better later on when he goes to like, you know, they're saying, Oh, where's he gone? He's probably going to go feed. He goes to a chemist shop. They're not open yet, but he's banging on the door trying to get in the guy, you know, the chemist seems nice enough. And I'm guessing this is like a, 
British equivalent of like a drugstore, like a Walgreens or a CVS or something like that. Or So he's like just throwing chemicals on the ground. The guy says, are you hungry or something? He turns around and his arm is deformed in like the strangest way. Like it's just, it's actually an impressive prosthetic for 1955. And he just swings it back like he's about to hit the guy. The guy does a crazy reaction, this cut away there. When his body's found later on, same gore level, you yeah. know, like it's eaten away there. Basically, this guy is out feeding right now. There's even a Frankenstein moment where he runs into a little girl having a tea party and little girl survives, so unlike Frankenstein. So you can't watch that and not think Frankenstein. They must have thrown yeah. that in there intentionally. <laughs> Harbinger of Frankenstein to come. Yeah. Um, and that little girl grows up to be a pretty decent actress in oh. the UK. I think she dated Paul McCartney and, uh, wow. yeah, I, yeah. Anyway, I forget what her name <laughs> is. So yeah. So he ends up in the zoo. Oh boy. Yeah. Ends up in the zoo. I, 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 I am one of those audience members that it's like, I could watch John wick all day. And I love, the, you know, just get so into it. But the second something happens to that dog, <laughs> that's when I'm kind of like, nope, got to look away for a minute. Oh, and it, just that can whole kill, it can kill like 25 human beings. But yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. kills a dog. <laughs> I'm sure those people did something. That dog, this dog's like, forget. <laughs> yes, I'm one of those people. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it, anyway, so. Again, uh, the astronaut goes to feed, eats basically all of the animals at the zoo, or most of them, and they find out he left some kind of like residue or something behind, and they, they catch some of it. Um, wh- I, I can't remember exactly what they found out from what they grabbed from him, but I do know that this is basically the catalyst to like the Act 3. They found out that, that it can self-procreate and that within 24 hours, like all of London will be overrun by these things. I got to give it props here because like what it builds up to, there's a BBC camera crew there. You know, they're about to cover, uh, and I wrote it down, the, um, uh, was it Restoration of Westminster Abbey? Yep. And it was, pr- I mean... It was pretty cool, like, because it goes, like, go to Camera A, go to Camera A. Well, that's what was so great about, like, I mentioned earlier that the BBC had a final draft clause. And so they, like, got, you know, say over the final draft of the script, and they had Nigel Neal make sure that it conformed to exactly the way the BBC does a production. So every time there's, like, TV stuff in this, it is spot on. And so well done. Yeah, it was so effective. I And the fact that they tied it to this very, like, prominent piece of architecture of of england that was ambitious and i i respected the hell out of it like you know you got this thing climbing on the scaffolding they're on the cameras watch it saying it's at least 20 feet long which had me ask shouldn't that have been like meters wouldn't they have the metric system but it was probably changed for the american release it probably was but this is like the found footage film of its day the wreck or whatever yeah, they're like, they're like exactly look let's just use and they do this a couple of times they did it when they were reviewing the film footage from the, mm-hmm. the ship and they did it here again where it's like what a brilliant way to save money yeah. and also like have it be interesting and different like let's just show what the camera crew sees you know right and then and then like you like you mentioned like in our, in our spoiler before, they said they decided that, uh, okay, well, it's on the scaffolding. We can they basically like 
hook electrodes to it and then fry it. Fried it, yeah. Um, I think that. I mean, okay. Other than the really awesome sound effect that came out of that thing when it was electrocuted, there was a part of me that, like, it just felt like, I, I don't know, just like all the build up to all of a sudden, like, eh, and it's gone. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think because we're used to in this day and age, like monsters keep coming back and they're so hard to kill, like. This is still of the age of the King Kong type movies where they shoot it down and right. dies. It, it never like once it falls off the building, it's dead. You know, it's right, like right. But 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 I think I'm more used to like of that era, like them at least having some form of rumination immediately right after the monster's been singed or whatever. I just I don't know. It, and, and when you were saying that they went back and they changed the ending to oh they changed it to where he just electrocutes the thing in the end, I'm like. I can see that because you can tell that they just went, uh, okay, yeah, they, they they fried it in the end. It was, it was the original Little Shop of Horrors uh, theatrical release ending. Well, I mean, it was not completely that because, okay, in the in the TV version anyway, that that rocket is known mm-hmm. as the Q one, as in Quartermass yeah. one. Quartermass right. had this whole rocket group, and he's completely undeterred. He's quarter ass. He's like, okay, we're going to start again and do another one. Okay. But I I will give props (laughs) to that ending. Like the second he walks out, I did kind of like him. Like as he's leaving and he's somber, people are talking, he doesn't interact with them. He doesn't react to them at all. And then all of a sudden he's like, all right, let's go again. Yeah. We're going to send up another. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that, Okay, that part was awesome. I'm talking about the gap between the electrodes and and before that started. It was like it seemed like it was just like meh. And then it got to that I was like, "Oh, wow." <laughs> okay. So, overall, thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, thumbs up. Definitely thumbs up. It broke a lot of new ground for stuff from the, like I said, I was not ready for that level of gore, of suspense from 1955. It did a lot of horror elements well, and you can tell that they knew it wasn't the sci-fi element that was impressive about it. It was the the horror element because they took a lot of care with the pacing and timing of those sequences. For me, the black sleep is just kind of meh, you know. Yeah. But this is is this is worth seeing. This is absolutely worth seeing. The black sleep was good. It was admirable, but I found myself like tuning out a lot. But with this one, I looked over at the timeline. Also, I was like, oh my god, it's been an hour. I I was just like this. This was got a great pace and it moves very well and i'm invested i'm totally invested and and again like you said the found footage stuff finding the uh the rocket scene and uh the 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 climax climax at the end like both of those are they're something people should revisit like it's something that is impressively done for its time yeah, okay, so I should mention, because um, we do- delve into to weird little things here, this was, <laughs> you know, originally a BBC production, mm-hmm. and the same BBC writers that wrote this worked on Doctor Who. Hmm. You know, staff writers, they would drop in references to, to stuff like the British Rocketry Group and stuff like that. So there's a fan theory that this takes place in the Doctor Who universe. Hmm. In fact, there's even a fan theory that Quartermass himself is a Time Lord. There are references in Doctor Who and like some of the spinoffs, I guess Torchwood was a spinoff of Doctor Who. Yes, yes it was. To this, to the Quartermass Okay, 
Okay. They're subtle, but they're there. I figured we'd throw that out there because it kind of has some ties to the Doctor Who universe. So. You, you were going to send me to Google to look that up because I really got into Doctor Who. <laughs> like when they when they rebooted it and everything and they brought the new series out. And my wife was a fan like all the way back in the Tom Baker years. So Me too. That's, like, so yeah. <laughs> I've seen all of the existing episodes of the first five Doctors. Okay. After Peter Davison regenerated to be Colin Baker, it gets a little spotty. Wasn't that into him? Wasn't that into Sylvester McCoy? I did watch the one terrible Fox pilot that they tried to bring it back in the 90s in the U.S. And (laughs) then I've seen like one or two episodes of maybe David Tennant. I don't know who it was. One of the newer doctors. And, you know, I... I liked it, but I, I can't get I can't go down that road because I'm the kind of nerd that has to watch everything. So I'm going to have to like watch all the Doctor Who episodes back to back and Torchwood. So that's going to be a while. That's quite it's quite the undertaking. It really I'm is. I'm waiting until I'm like deathly ill or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I got into it like it was like Matt Smith's. Uh, I think he was like one season into it, so it was pretty easy for me to pick up. The Christopher Eccleston one-off season is, it's a little rough, but it's laying the groundwork. David Tennant, I just love David Tennant. He's just insanely entertaining to watch. And then Matt Smith has got his own breed of entertainment. Peter Capaldi, I thought he made a great doctor as well. I was I was happy to watch his run. I wanted to like Jodie Whittaker's season so much. She was such a good doctor. It was the writing that let me down because you can definitely tell that David Moffat left. I don't know. I saw a couple of episodes where the Slitheen were the villains. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and people were talking about, oh, should we kill them? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fucking kill them. This is me. This is me <laughs> and my my William Shatner. Old school again. science fiction. Yeah, it's universe. like, fucking kill them. They're trying to take over the world. Kill them. They are evil. And then, and then there was another episode I watched where like there's, they were being chased by a Dalek and they run up some stairs and then the Dalek starts flying. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, screw this. Like Daleks can fly now. Like the whole point of Daleks is that you could defeat them by running up a flight of stairs. You know, <laughs> so. there were, there was a couple BBC movies and I, and again, my riff track sense, um, that in the seventies, I, I, I want to say they did have some special effects with the Daleks then too. So that might've been Canon. <laughs> Yeah, I think it. I think you're right. I think it was. It might have been in Doctor Who and the Daleks or one of those yep. old movies. Anyway, okay. So we need to start wrapping this up. So okay. I'm gonna say, if you liked this, you know, obviously subscribe. It would be even better if you gave us a five star review on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Even better than that is we just grow by word of mouth. So just tell a friend, tell someone if, if someone mentions at some point, you know, they're looking for something for their commute or they're looking for something to listen to recommend geek channel eight podcast to them. If you want to get a hold of us, you can write to us at GC eight podcast. That's letter G letter C number eight podcast at gmail.com. We release every date with an eight, the eighth, the 18th and 28th of each month. Until next time, this is Eric. And this is John. Signing off. All I know is, like, 
there's not going to be that good of releases from this year because every band in the world is on tour right now. <laughs> every band, like the entire name, a band that is not on tour. You can't do it. Oh no. Just cause they've been held up for so many years and now they're like, Oh, we're allowed to get out. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> they've been waiting every, to trash hotel rooms. <laughs> every single band, every band you can name is on tour. They, they probably realize trashing their own living room sucks cause they have to clean it. <laughs> 